Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 189 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by a gentleman probably 20, 30 miles down the road in Davis. This is Andres Resendez. Andres Resendez is a historian at the University of California, Davis. Go Aggies. His specialties are Mexican history, early exploration and colonization of the Americas and the Pacific Ocean and borderlands history. In 2017, Resendez won the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy for the book, The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. Resendez grew up in Mexico City, and he is currently a professor in the Department of History, as I said, at the University of California, Davis. How are you this afternoon? Just fine, thank you. A pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. I would love to ask you about, about growing up in Mexico City, about your early relationships with languages. I'm not sure, you know, when was you moved to the States? I don't know if you had a, a long time in Mexico. I don't know, you know, English and Spanish. Did you speak English even in Mexico City? I love to know about uh, your relationship with languages and sure. just your early reading and writing. Yeah. Sure. So I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. I remained in Mexico City until, I mean, I did all the way through my BA over there. Okay. I did uh, do an international high school. I got a scholarship to go to New Mexico. So that was my oh. first real stint with English. Huh. Uh, you, I mean, in Mexico, you study English as a second language okay. uh, in most schools. And then um, I did my PhD at the University of Chicago, which is really where I struggled with the writing. I mean, talking mm. about uh, different writing traditions. Uh, mm. My writing training in Spanish uh, is very different. It's uh, it. I mean, at least in those years in the 1980s, and I, uh, the uh, the writing placed a lot of emphasis on elegance and you know uh, flowing um, mm -hmm. flowing sentences, etc. So I had to relearn all of that when I started writing in English, in which <laughs> concision and directness uh, were uh, were far more uh, more important. Uh, interesting. Is is it the University of Chicago that has? Um like their own style, you know how there's like the MLA. Yeah. There's a Chicago right? manual of style. Uh, yeah. yeah but, but it's really not about the writing style, but it's the style of the footnotes. The research uh, more specifically. The footnotes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, growing up in Mexico city, I, I know that he's not from, I know he's from Colombia. I think of like Marquez and he had his great, you know, tradition of writing in Mexico city, lived there for a long time, but you know, I don't know if it was him, but who's, who's some other writers Mexican writers or not, who really inspired you as you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, Garcia Marquez was living in Mexico at the time, and there was this great tradition of Latin American uh, uh, magic realist uh, literary figures, uh, Cortázar, Borges, uh, etc. Uh, so I uh, read those as I was growing up, and that's what... Uh, what instilled in me, I suppose, the uh, the love of uh, of writing and reading. Mm -hmm. um, I um, even as I was 
doing my PhD in history, I look for inspiration in, I mean, some of the writing in history is quite sorted. Some yeah. of it is really good. So, uh, so you really need to, um, to look for good models of writing mm. when you are in that line of work. Talking about a little bit, but you, most of the ones we talked about are fiction writers. I know, you know, Marquez, there was a journalist as well and all that, but um, I mean, what, what were you able to draw from fiction? I guess what's the connection to, you know, to writing about history? I mean, have you, did you start off writing poems and short stories or has it always been, you know, nonfiction? Yeah, I started. Uh, yeah, I mean, my so I, in school and later on, I was very drawn to literature. I uh, I did try my hand at writing short stories. I may have fantasized about writing a novel. And even later, as I became a historian, uh, I mean, many historians do secretly uh dream about uh, writing a novel so even okay. as i was doing archival research and finding information i would occasionally stumble upon really interesting characters or really sticky situations uh, uh. and i would set them aside in a file to be used for a literary project that has mm -hmm. never come to fruition <laughs> so uh, uh but but yeah so that has always been an interest of mine okay pues usted tiene mucho tiempo Todavía, sí, hey, toda... todavía. Después de que me retire. Hey, please, please remind me the name of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about like almost like a historical fiction. You write in the book, The Other Slavery, about the one uh, person who had such an incredible life is almost fictional. Uh, Cabeza de Vaca. Yes, definitely. But the gentleman who was part of the, um, part of like the, not the Reconquista, like the Inquisition, he was, he was Jewish and like, uh, and he started out in Portugal. His Carvajal. Uncle, yeah. Carvajal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he becomes, your, de historical, yeah, yeah. Maybe he becomes your historical fiction, like main character or something. Huh? Oh yeah. He <laughs> was, uh, he was an amazing character. Yeah. It's like truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. Yeah. As we get into more, have we gotten into more recent years, um, who were some of the writers fiction, nonfiction, journalists, historians who really, you know, they're like must reads. Um, well, then as I um as I became a historian, I you become very specialized. So a lot of the emphasis is on um you know mastering the right literature. So you read both good and bad uh sure. works. Uh -huh. um, but you read them more for the arguments and for the information contained in these books rather than the mm. elegant writing. Mm. I did occasionally indulge in some other historical writing that I found especially appealing or especially um, influential. Mm. So I remember reading, for example, there was a French historian, Robert Darnton at Princeton, who whose uh, prose I always admired. There was another historian, Simon Schama, who, uh, who wrote about France, about uh, the, uh, you know, about the Dutch, uh, whose, whose writing I also admired mm -hmm. as I was, uh, you know, as I was studying for my PhD. So, so there were a few um, models like that, but I guess once you really become a professional historian, a lot of the, re the reading you do uh, is guided by your need to do research and to master literature, the literature. That makes sense. The book is obviously, well, the book is called The Other Slavery and talks about the indigenous peoples and others mainly indigenous people tried of the Americas. I wonder, like, growing up in Mexico City, you know, I mean, it was only, what, a couple years ago? Well, I don't know, five, ten years ago, where, like, the Mexican government has, I'm not saying it right, like, put, like, those of African descent on the census, right? And mm -hmm. there are so many, so many different indigenous groups in Mexico, 
you know, a lot of us just learn, you know, mainly about the Aztecs and the Mayans and maybe a couple others, right? So right. I just wonder maybe about if there's any bridges between growing up in Mexico City, growing up in Mexico, and the way that the indigenous are taught or are not taught about in this book. Yes, obviously, what, growing up in Mexico City, you become uh, painfully aware of the uh, reality of indigenous peoples in contemporary Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the disjuncture between, I mean, so the, you know, the, 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 the people in indigenous communities in Mexico tend to uh, live in poorer communities. Mm -hmm. uh, they often work back in the 1980s and 1990s when I was growing up. Uh, many of them worked in, uh, you know, in menial work. Many of them were maids, uh, et cetera, porters, uh, you know, gardeners, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, wealthy households in Mexico City. You would also be shocked by going to some of these indigenous communities and the, the different levels, socioeconomic levels. So the, that reality existed alongside these uh, splendorous accounts that you learned at school of the Aztecs and the Mayas that you were right. uh, that you were referring to. So there was this disconnect uh, always. And so there was some something to explain there between what happened between then and now uh that uh that that was always there that i wanted to uh, to put my finger on and of course uh some of those some of that information uh was painfully obvious as i got deeper into the research about the circumstances of native americans not only in mexico but throughout latin america and also in the united states uh, especially in what is now the Western uh, part of the United States, but also even earlier history of the Eastern United States. Mm. Oh, I appreciate that answer. I mean, I think, right, being a professor, being a historian in some ways is almost like being a lawyer where you, you know, you cite precedent, right? And you build upon others' ideas. And I wonder about like seeds for this book and maybe like what you were trying to, I mean, I know you, uh, the main question that you deal with is, you know, the number of Indian slaves since Columbus time. That's what you say in the introduction, at least. Mm -hmm. I guess just wonder like seeds for this book and like maybe is this like a, in opposition to other, not that you have to name books, but opposition to other ideas or like, okay, hey, now new information is there and we're expanding upon other ideas, that kind of thing? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the most concrete trigger was an earlier book uh, that I had written uh, that was based on the life of this character that has come up already, Cabeza de Vaca. So this was a mm -hmm. disastrous 16th century expedition that uh, whose intention was to colonize Florida mm -hmm. and basically uh, out of 300 uh, expeditionaries, only four survived. They were enslaved by Native Americans in what is now the coast of Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, and then survive by transforming themselves into healers and eventually walking back to Mexico City. Yeah. So in order to flesh out that story, I probe into the literature about Indian slavery. What does it mean to be held in bondage by Native Americans? And conversely, um, when these four survivors uh escaped their captivity, the first individuals that they met, other Europeans that they met, uh, were was a, a cavalry detachment moving north from Mexico City into what is now northwestern Mexico. So this was the cutting edge of the Spanish Empire mm -hmm. in the north, and that was basically, um, they were basically enslaving uh, Native Americans. That was their business. So that's where the light, the, the light went off about. So this must be 
a really big deal and you know the the first business so to speak uh of the spanish empire in the fringes in the northern fringes and so so that's how that was the the trigger but of course as i contemplated writing a book about this i read many scholars uh i mean it would be long you find many of them in the bibliography uh yeah. who uh who wrote about pieces of this story uh so uh so so the i guess the breakthrough was more conceptual in that naming these because people knew about coercion of indigenous people's labor coercion but it went by different names there were different mm -hmm. modalities of this and scrupulous historians wanted to really make these distinctions and not conflate them all um and so and while i don't want to conflate them all i do want to see a more panoramic uh and uh -huh. and get a better sense of the scope of these phenomenon so i yeah. call it the other slavery and that's i guess that's what uh what was new or that that's that's the part of the book that i really needed to defend vis-a-vis -vis the academic community cite kind of like two reasons to call it the other slavery one you just talked about is you know you start off the book by talking about people tend to think of the african slave trade the middle passage and so that's this is the other slavery but what, what's kind of like the other meaning or meanings for the other slavery what like as far as like the, the type of jobs that were done or or how did how did you mean that well the it's also other in a in another fundamental sense which is that uh early on the spanish crown prohibited uh, the enslavement of Native Americans. And so that is why, uh, in contrast to African slavery, which was always sanctioned and regulated and permitted not only by the Spanish crown, by, but by many other empires mm -hmm. in the 16th and 17th centuries, the, uh, the enslavement of Native Americans was outlawed, flatly outlawed as early as 1542 with the so-called new laws. Mm -hmm. And of course, by then, uh, Spanish uh, colonists had been holding slaves, native slaves, for half a century, mm -hmm. um, and they could not easily let go of their slaves. And so what they did in collusion with uh, Spanish officials was to uh, change the name. And so that's how the other slavery became these myriad of different institutions, uh, you know, sometimes called encomienda, repartimiento, indigenous held in deposits, uh, indigenous peonage, right. all of these different um, names and slightly different formulations, which essentially arose from the fact that Indian slavery was legally uh, outlawed, but in practice it was carried out um, on the ground. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that was I was so struck by that in the book, like how, how arbitrary in some ways the, the slavery was meaning you know there you you write about some like some legitimate court cases where they were you know the judge had looked at the information for two years five years ten years and then there are other times when you know because it was such a free-for-all as far as like you know maybe a rural area where there weren't a lot of people around it was just like yeah he took the slaves you know just the arbitrary nature of it you know some some basically called it what it was and some like you said oh this is an encomienda this is the other one's what? Repartimiento? Repartimiento, yeah. Yeah, but just the arbitrary nature of it. 
and then you talk about the new laws. That was what, 1542? Yeah. And just like how it was on the books as a law, but a lot of people were just like, eh, like we're just going to find our ways around it, right? Right. I mean, uh, when what, what's really amazing about this is that here you have Spain halfway around the world mm-hmm. ruling an entire hemisphere exactly. and the possibility of enforcing that by just the sheer force of issuing a law is uh, very difficult. So what you find is that uh, really the enforcers of the law were local and regional colonists as well as um, officials, royal officials who were themselves uh, holders of Indian slaves. Mm. So uh, so yeah. it, it was very difficult to enforce such a law under such circumstances. And there are instances, for example, the Kingdom of Chile, in which the governor said, I know this is a well-meaning law, but it uh-huh. is impossible to enforce right. it uh, because this would bring about a war and the complete destruction of the kingdom. So uh, so it's not possible to go through with it. Hmm. That that was you know a new idea for me was I knew of course the you know justification like oh yeah so oh yeah we're you know we're Christianizing them you know all of that of course was you know mainly I mean one hundred percent just not true um, but the idea of like oh it now it's such an ingrained part of our economy that if we stop this everyone's going to be in trouble I was I just thought it was so interesting the way the ways in which people went to justify the the peonage the slavery right right i mean again uh in mexico uh when these laws were uh were being discussed uh the uh the the principal spanish colonist actually sent a memorial or a petition to the crown uh and they had these elaborate questionnaires with some of the mm-hmm. early arrivals to Mexico, the earliest arrivals to Mexico, so the oldest and most respected colonists in Mexico. And they asked them leading questions so th- such as, do you know that uh, slavery was not brought about by Europeans, but that it already existed uh, in the new world? And questions. so, of course, they said, yes, we know that. And they cited examples of that. And do you know that, uh, you know, that these slaves are absolutely central to all the planting and harvesting and building of the buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, yes, is the answer to that and so on. So uh, so they they did uh, try to resist this uh, legally and otherwise. Became incredibly self-perpetuating, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my. So one of the big hypotheses you make is that from the arrival of Columbus till about the end of the 19th century, somewhere between two and a half to five million um, Indians were taken as slaves. You compare it to the African slave trade and, you know, kind of relative where um, a lot of historians will say about 20% or so of Africans were taken. Am I getting that number right? But just the comparison you make, and then in just the 16th and 17th centuries with Indian slaves, you know, well, with Indians in general, somewhere between 70 to 90%, died died off sorry that was the number something right because of and you make the key point yes epidemics were very important and unfortunately you know were, were disastrous and tragic as was warfare but but you make the point that the slavery and what came with that the overworking was was a huge part um and you also make the point that because of like you said like the new laws and the arbitrariness of it not being able to enforce it was kind of like the slavery never really went away right so there are many elements there in that uh, in that yes. question uh so first of all in absolute terms uh i i did want to count them because i do believe numbers matter 
mm. especially in terms of getting a sense of what's the overall scope of these phenomenon. So in absolute terms, whereas 12.5 Africans were forcibly transported ac across the Atlantic, mm. I wanted to do a comparable number. It is a very speculative number because mm. uh, A, the paper trail is less robust for Native Americans than for African slavery because it was illegal. It was made illegal by the, by the Spanish crown, um, even though we have some other evidence. Uh, so, so it has to, and but I I leave that as a challenge to future historians to refute me, or I try to be judicious in the number. I didn't, you know, it is possible to string together a hugely inflated number if you mm. if you cherry pick some of the numbers by contemporary by people in the 16th and 17th centuries. I try mm -hmm. to resist that and try to come up with reasonable numbers as as reasonable as I could. So we'll see what happens uh, going forward with right. that. Number. But I think it's it's uh, anyways. Um, so, uh, but it's it's an important number. Uh, the other point is the the one that you make, which is there is a very close correlation between slavery and epidemics, mm -hmm. and in fact there is a synergistic relationship, and that's what I try to show, especially for the Caribbean, but elsewhere in the in the continent as well. Meaning, um, epidemics bring about. Uh, collapse of the businesses because of lack of workers and these lack of workers triggers uh raids to bring additional mm -hmm. slaves which in turn disseminate epidemics right. so the two go hand in hand mm -hmm. um and so that's 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 the the key insight there is that uh, both this is this is again an insight that is not that has been shown for other reasons for example paul kelton has shown that for what is now the the u.s southwest the mm -hmm. south, southeast um, so, um, so it's, it's a, it's a common phenomenon and it's yeah. an important realization. So, I mean, what you're really saying is like, um, it's not, it's not desirable nor possible to like separate these many were killed by the epidemics. This many were killed by warfare. This many were killed by slavery, right? It's not, it's not even it's possible. It's extremely, yeah, extremely yeah. difficult to, to yeah. say that. Yeah. Well, you talk a lot about, you know, building upon others work and then building on yours and the future of, you know, what will come with your research. I wonder like. Have have people used it for have people used it for negative or, or good reasons? Like I I just think of people who, you know, it sounds horrible to say, but there are, unfortunately are like almost like slavery apologists. Like, are there people who maybe use this to like minimize like the African slave trade or to, um, you know, I don't know, minimize the the fate of the indigenous that it wasn't as bad in this way or that way. I wonder if. You know, but also the good ways in which people have used your your research, your important research. Yeah, well, of course, I I worried initially when I was writing this book. Uh, I didn't want to make this into a race to the bottom to uh -huh. uh, to minimize to say, you know, Native Americans had it worse than Africans. That's the last thing I wanted this right. to to be about because I mean, both groups lost uh, incommensurably as a result of similar comparable. Um, coercion types of coercion. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, was very clear about, I mean, whenever you're writing about slavery, uh, it is easy to, to make distinctions between the slavers and the, the enslaved. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to make very clear in the book is that mm -hmm. uh, here you, you find precious few individuals who were not taking advantage of this, of, of this practice. 
In other words, uh, the Spanish Empire did it, but also the French, the British, the Dutch, um, everybody did it. Uh, the Americans, the Mexicans did it. Uh, various native groups did it to other native groups. So clearly, this is not a a book about it's it's a book about human nature, mm. um, and it's uh, it's a commentary on human nature, unfortunately, uh, and that is uh, the profits to be derived and the benefits, the advantages to be derived from this uh, were so overwhelming that uh, that many peoples in different times in the 400 year period that I cover in one way or another, if they could, if they were in a position to benefit from this, did it. Hmm. I wonder about the usage of the term Indian, mm -hmm. uh, you know, indigenous or native. Um, I know there's, you know, there are some groups who've kind of reclaimed it and, you know, call themselves American Indians, that kind of thing. I wonder about the usage of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, it's a, it's a difficult issue, of course, as a writer, right? Of what terms to, so my policy, which is in line with the policies of others is that whenever you can refer to a specific group by the, by their own name, you, I, I try to use that when I'm referring to natives more broadly, I refer to them as indigenous with capital I or native Americans. Um, Indians is a term that proliferates in the literature and also in the sources. Um, okay. So uh, so it also creeps up in, in my book. But you will see that, I mean, I've been writing about such topics for, for 20 years now, and my usage has evolved. I think I used Indians more freely at the beginning of my career, and I am now a lot more guarded about that, you know, in, in more recent uh, years. And rightfully so, I should have mm. been aware of that much earlier. Mm. You talk about like individual groups, the the Taino, like is the Arawak or the Arawak? Is that an older term for Taino or another one? Um, yeah. So the Taino people refer to the inhabitants of the large islands in the Caribbean, right? Hispaniola, et cetera. Very yeah. interesting in the book that uh, obviously very sad and tragic. You you talked about like I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but that the the Caribbean islands, um, particularly like Española or Hispaniola, were were probably the most that were most decimated by disease right and and so much you know, again like you know in school you learn about the incas maybe down in south america you learn about the the aztecs the mayas the taino you know not a lot of the literature maybe has has gone has survived from those times etc but people a lot of times people don't think of the caribbean and the indigenous peoples because of just that complete eradication in many ways from the disease i wonder like some of the differences you found in the caribbean versus like mexico well, what used to be Mexico, Mexico into the American Southwest. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, first of all, the uh, one important difference is the just the sheer geography. So the fact that we're talking about a basin full of islands, some of them large, but some of them very small, mm -hmm. many of them populated, uh, the vast majority of them populated, created almost ideal conditions for enslavement, mm -hmm. meaning you could have a even a dilapidated ship with a few slavers, a few horses, a few um, dogs, uh, war dogs mm -hmm. that could be turned loose on an island and they would literally carry off the entire population of that island, leaving behind an empty island. Mm -hmm. And so these peoples were often, so this, and so that's one, so, so that in Mexico or in the, in the continent, uh, it is uh, more feasible to run away and to hide. Mm -hmm. 
than in an island, that especially a small island where there's just nowhere to hide. Mm. Um, so, so that's one one important difference. Another, again, very peculiar circumstance to uh, to the Caribbean is that uh, early Europeans made that their first home. So it's called the Española because it was the one island mm -hmm. that they had colonized at first, this large island shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic that they called mm -hmm. the Spanish island. Um, and in that island, they found significant uh, deposits of gold. Yes. And so to, to work that gold, they needed considerable labor. So so there was a, a gold rush, the first gold rush of the American continent, not in California, but in these Spanish island that unfolded between 1500 and 1510, which essentially shrunk the population of this island. Mm -hmm. And it uh, essentially launched uh, slaving raids to neighboring islands in order to replenish the, the mm -hmm. population that was dwindling in this Spanish island. You quoted one of the one of the conquistadors. He was Italian. I don't don't remember the name, but he basically was like, you know, talking about what you're saying about the Caribbean islands and the depopulation. Like he's basically saying, like, hey, come on, let's let's be real. And it was quote, craze for gold was a destruction. Right? It wasn't the illnesses, it was, you know, the main thing that was the 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 craze for gold. Right. Um so again, um it's very difficult to disentangle environmental from man-made or human-made mm. uh, conditions in terms of the decimation because the two are so closely intertwined yeah but um but clearly overwork uh exploitation uh was a major if you read the spanish sources it is rife with descriptions of that especially in the caribbean in the early years uh the 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 notion that it was epidemic disease uh it, you know, so, so again, it, we need to to be careful about that because even though uh, illnesses are reported from the very beginning, instances of large scale mortality do not occur, especially, for example, in this Spanish island, until 25 years after the initial colony, after 1492, mm. so in 1518. Yeah. Um, so and and yet by then uh what we have is a uh a really dramatic trajectory towards demographic collapse already well underway in the island so uh, so so clearly if if not a dramatic event of you know smallpox for example which is, which which was the major killer mm -hmm. in the region then uh you have to look at other uh, other aspects I was kind of just figured that the epidemic started right away and you know you you made the point about like hey you know there's a 14 day what do you incubation call it incubation period incubation yeah. thank you incubation period you know all the reasons why it would not and did not happen right away obviously uh Cristobal Colon Christopher Columbus you know you you make it uh again the point that he was a businessman and that's one thing to say but you give some more details about kind of like what his plan was in in going there, you know what the conversations were like with um, Isabella, oh, Ferdinand, right, and all of that—the famous ones we know. Mm -hmm. I wonder about like the the idea of when he came, 
when the, a lot of the Spanish came, when the Europeans came, and the way that they saw the natives is the term hombre de, de razón. I mean, what does that I mean? What a, a man of reason, kind of just like the way that they came. Was it was it a hundred percent white supremacy? How did they kind of like you know have the social caste system? How did they see the natives? Did they see them as one big blob? Did they see them depending on you know each individual group? Yeah, well, That's first of all, they yeah, big question. <laughs> first of all, they introduced a, a term that did not exist, which was Indians, right? Uh, right. So it, individual groups living in pre-contact America would never have thought of themselves as mm. part of this category, mm. um, which was clearly a, an invention from these Europeans who mistake the, mistook them for uh, for people from the Indian subcontinent uh, initially. Um, so that's one thing. I, I'm not sure that um, race was the key. Uh, it was more whether there was a very famous debate as to whether these Indians had soul or not. Mm. And it, this went back to Aristotle, who had uh, written about natural slaves, that is, mm. people who needed to be guided because they lacked some of the attributes of humans, full humans. And so therefore they would be better off by becoming enslaved by others who did have all the attributes of being human. And so this was very much a part of the discussion um, as to whether these Indians in fact uh, had souls. And if they didn't have souls, then Spanish colonies were fully justified in taking them as slaves because they would be better off in that in that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they did have soul and they were fully humans, then their rights would have to be respected mm -hmm. and they would have to be uh, Christianized by persuading them of the truth. So th these were not um, cultural relativists of the 21st um, century. These were 16th century Spanish who believed that the Catholic religion was the true religion and all the others were wrong. Mm -hmm. So they were not going to give up on that, uh, but uh, but they would have to uh, need to convert them mm -hmm. by, by persuading them through peaceful means rather than through ens wholesale enslavement. Yeah, call me a little cynical, but I can see why there'd be reason to say, oh, no, they're not humans. Those who there's some silver and some gold calling their name, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> they uh, so uh, just to you know emphasize your point, uh, which I make in the book, which is that Isabel and Ferdinand, the Catholic monarchs that you just mentioned, in fact were uneasy about slavery. So slavery was a uh, an institution that was prevalent in Europe even before mm -hmm. conquest, of course. So Isabella and Ferdinand essentially outlawed. Indian slavery early on. Right. I mean, we talked about the new laws and they outlawed, or rather their successor, Charles II, um, outlawed Indian slavery completely with the new laws. But before that, it was generally discouraged, except in a few circumstances. And one of the circumstances was uh, indigenous peoples who were cannibalistic, mm -hmm. thinking that this is such a terrible sin that uh, only enslavement would 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 correct it. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why Spaniards found so many cannibals all over the place. Um, <laughs> so again, just to, uh, to support the point that you're making. Right. So you talked about like Charles, you said Charles II, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's called Charles V, or yeah, Charles uh, V, the, the emperor. Yeah, was, yeah, right. and so then what, Mariana yeah. was his mom or his wife. Well, no, then we're talking about uh, a century later. So, yeah, uh, so it. this is in the seventh, in the late seventeenth century. That is Philip the Fourth. Okay. And Mariana, his wife, uh, embark right. on a crusade against uh, enslavement. Oh, I mean, throughout the empire, the Spanish Empire. Which shows the point you've talked about the reasons why. You sh- shows the point about you know so many stops and starts, and this law was made, but it wasn't followed, and then well, we're going to make this law, and certain you know uh, crusaders, if you will. You know, so many of us. I, I remember learning about de las casas. Sure. Uh, I wonder about. Did you find? Him and other, did you find legitimate legitimate people who you really felt do, did it for the right reasons, who really, you know, wanted to outlaw slavery, who really came from a, whether it was a true religious sense or just a sense of morality? Did you find any, I hate to say the word, heroes? Yes. I mean, I think there were many who were, A, willing to fight Las Casas being one very mm-hmm. clear example, um, uh, who were willing to, but hardly the only one, who were morally appalled by what they saw and who attempted to ameliorate the conditions of um, of native slaves mm-hmm. uh, in one way or another in the Spanish. They, there were also others who gave up their, uh, their slaves, um, you know, freed their slaves, uh, et cetera. So, uh, so there are, um, it, it was a real discussion ongoing discussion that lasted for 400 years mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and you find people on both sides throughout this discussion um, and you find some heroes as well as villains uh, throughout this story the the book is is so great because it you know it does cover a long period of time but it also you know it's, it's the mic- macro and the micro it does zoom in you know he talks about like you know how things change because of such and such reason how things change because, you know, after the Mexican-American War, when all of a sudden, you know, northern northern Texas was not Mexico anymore, you know, those type of things. You write a lot about the Pueblo peoples in, in New Mexico and the Comanches, and I was really interested in, you know, in the raids that they did. And then your, your line towards the end is that the Civil War led to, quote, uh, the greatest Indian slavery boom, kind of, uh, you know, ironically, right? I'm talking about the U.S. Civil War. That it led yeah. to a great slavery boom with among the Indians and the indigenous peoples. I wonder how that how, how that happened in New Mexico. Yeah, right. Uh, in New Mexico. Yes. Yeah. the The reason for that was that the uh, the Civil War also affected New Mexico, but after the early skirmishes, um, the uh, the Union uh, troops kind of uh, expelled the Confederates, and they just had nothing to do but to wait for the outcome of the war mm-hmm. elsewhere in you know farther east. And uh, during that time, they used their military might in order to conduct a campaign against the most quarrelsome of the indigenous peoples that they that they were dealing with in New mm. Mexico, which was the Navajo mm. nation or the Ne uh, nation. And so that's how they uh, they went into this campaign, which resulted in an upsurge of um baptisms of navajo children in the mm-hmm. uh in, in the new mexican uh registry the you know birth registries so that shows you that a flood of uh navajo children are being mm-hmm. inducted into 
Spanish-speaking and American and others households in New Mexico, which again is exactly uh, exactly the you know one of the hallmarks of these other slavery, as I call it. Mm. And then another you know another ironic thing that you, that you write about is that the, it was the U.S. Congress, it wasn't abolitionist groups that really started quote the impetus to eradicate Indian slavery. You know, again talked about all the stops and starts, and that if it was never really if it was against the law going way back, then it was harder to you know eradicate and stop it. I wonder how what what role the Congress, U.S. Congress, played in that end. Sure. Uh, so um, so again, uh, it's one of these instances in which there were some heroic um, uh, individuals on one side of the debate trying to make things better for mm-hmm. Native Americans, and so they. Um, complained to Congress, uh, they sent reports, uh, and Congress decided to investigate mm-hmm. uh, these allegations of peonage. By then, peonage was the main form in which this other slavery was being conducted in the western states of the United States. And uh, New Mexico was exhibit A of this phenomenon, but it was hardly the only place. I mean, uh, it also occurred in California, el- elsewhere in uh, Utah, Surely, Congress took it upon itself to investigate and to produce a report, which is a mine of information mm. about this practice or this set of practices in different states. You know, it all of this culminated in the passage of the so-called Peonage Act of eighteen sixty-four, mm. which I'm, I'm sorry, eighteen sixty-seven, which uh, essentially outlawed the practice of peonage. Peonage understood as the um, the coercion in in fulfillment of a debt obligation uh, of somebody. So somebody incurred a debt, and that person was then unable to leave the place of work until the debt was was repaid. Mm. Something that often resulted in in confinement for life, and sometimes in confinement not only of of you know a person but also their descendants. So so in fact uh, something very similar to to slavery, even though it was called peonage. And something that, you know, reminds you a lot of what you hear even in 2023, right? About somebody works on it in the fields, let's say, and you have to buy from their, from, you know, your boss's store and company money, you know, all those things over the years seems, unfortunately, has not fully gone away. Right. I mean, so one of the arguments that I tried to make is that even though I call it the other slavery, in fact, this is the slavery, the slavery mm. that is most uh, is, is the most direct antecedent to the types of mm. uh, practices that did we find today, which is the use of instruments like debt or or um, or jail terms, right? Uh, uh, in order to force people to work against their will for nominal or symbolic payment. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, so I try to, even though my work uh, gets only until 1900, I try to make the case. I leap over the 20th century yes. and try <laughs> to make the case that there is a direct connection there. Definitely. So, you know, I'm so impressed that you're able to humanize the people in the book, and it's not it's not an apology. It's not apologists for slavery. It's not, but just how you're really able to tell their stories. Uh, you talked about Carvajal and. De la Vaca, and especially in your other book, Cabeza. Sorry, what was the name? Cabeza de la Cabeza Vaca. De Vaca. Yeah. yeah, Cabeza de Vaca. Yeah, and so many, so many other people. And so I just, I guess, my last question for you is kind of like, how do you avoid moralizing in such, especially in such a a fraught topic? How how is it just is that just 
your historian, you know, background, your historian um, training, like, boom, this is the story when it's so hard not to moralize. Yeah. I mean, I rightly or wrongly, I, uh, I just um, was interested in this phenomenon. I found this evidence and I tried to put it together as best as I could. Uh, and I tried to avoid, uh, I mean, I tried to present it as, as it was, I mean, to me, mm -hmm. it was amazing that some of the victims of this, uh, uh, presented their case in such dispassionate ways. I mean, mm -hmm. you can, you can become very dramatic, but some, some of these individuals describe their circumstances in very objective, dispassionate ways, which I, uh, which I really, um, was very taken by. Well, not just myself, but the the voters for the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy are all big fans. And obviously you, uh, the hypotheses and all that came through and that you very much proved your point in this incredible book. I, I, I lied. Sorry. The last question is, you know, what what now, if you don't mind sharing, are you are you building on some some of the micro honing in on some of the stories from this book? Is there other research that you're doing? Well, uh one of the 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 side plot lines of the of the book was that there the slavery the tentacles of slavery reached across the Pacific, uh -huh. and so the that led me right? yeah the Philippines there were uh -huh. some uh, peoples in the Philippines and even from as far as the Indian subcontinent uh, being funneled mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. the Pacific into the silver mines of northern Mexico, for example, and so I became very interested in that. So so my my subsequent work has been focusing on that the opening of the pacific and the the aftermath of that incredible story that is ever so more relevant now that the center of gravity of the world is moving mm. moving away from the atlantic and towards the pacific wow very interesting yeah I, yeah i was so struck by like um talking about the uh the islands that were majority muslim in, in the philippines like in the book you're talking about and that seemed like that was yet another reason that they were not to be seen as hombres de razón and and yeah, the the one gentleman you wrote about who was a young Indian man, Indian as an in Indian in these, you know, South Asia. Mm -hmm. Ah, very interesting. Wow, looking forward to that. Cool. Yeah. Yep. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for I feel like I'm uh, like nine times smarter after talking to you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Go Aggies and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode 189 with Andres Resendez. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. This is the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. The July episode for the bonus episode is with Daniel Allen Cox, an incredible book, an incredible conversation. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. 
The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 190 with Ellen Burkett Morris. She is an award-winning, multi-genre writer, teacher, and editor based in Louisville, Kentucky. She is also the 2015 winner of the Bevel Summers Prize for her story May Apples, and she won the Betty Gabehart Prize for Fiction. This episode will air on July 5th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Andres Resendez, whose work, like The Other Slavery, the uncovered story of Indian enslavement in America, gives you chills at will. <laughs>